0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Discourse Podcast. I am your host, Chad V, and I'm being joined, as always, by my panel of Kwanzaa correspondents. (laughs) (laughs) All
1: right, Kamala Harris.
0: Say hello and, you know, share your favorite uh, Kwanzaa memory as we, you know.
1: (laughs) So wait, do we have to add, like, a bigger line to this, just like Harris actually would? Or, like, are we just going to keep it,
2: you know? My favorite childhood childhood Kwanzaa memory was... uh, (laughs) Back in actually third grade, uh, my all white class introduced me to Kwanzaa and then immediately expected me to introduce it to them. And that was awesome.
0: I think quite a few black people's experience being introduced to Kwanzaa came in the form of like their white teacher teaching them about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I never heard of it growing up, so...
0: I heard about. It. I mean, it was one of those things where, like, you know, during the holiday season, you learned about the different holidays that people celebrated. So you learned about Ramadan. You know, you learned about Hanukkah. You learned about Christmas a little bit, and you know, and then they mentioned Kwanzaa. I remember. I know. I know what the little candle holder is called. It's the Kanara, and they had the episode about a proud family episode where yeah, they get visited proud by. Family.
1: Like that's why I learned about Ramadan. That's why I learned about Kwanzaa was proud family. I learned about that shit in school.
0: They had the uh, the Kwanzaa ghost, but you know that was that was clearly a lie. <laughs> that might be the least believable lie of the holiday i mean well definitely the holiday season but i meant of like the 2020 political cycle like kamala harris was celebrating kwan's as a child that but that was such a ridiculous thing to say
1: i don't know i think what well, maybe she said this lie in 2019 but the whole i was listening to tupac in college when she couldn't have that's a big lie if you're black like that's a big lie to try to make white people think you're blacker than you are and try to ingratiate yourself to black people when really you aren't culturally a part of our community. And you've chosen to alienate yourself further from us further by acting like you're down when really you just was out here trying to lock niggas up. That's what she was about.
0: Oh, no, for sure. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden both tell, I mean, well, pathological liars, obviously, because they're politicians, but also they tell the kind of like weird, petty, easily disprovable lies that don't even feel like I'm being gaslit or whatever. But like, it just feels like it makes me feel like I have the Mandela effect. (laughs) Because they just say, like, things that are just, like, slightly bullshit off that, like, no one really cares about. And it's, like, entirely unnecessary, usually. Like, you know, not like Joe Biden getting arrested, (laughs) you know, during us.
2: That's a big lie.
0: But just stuff like, you know, Kamala Harris listening to Tupac in college or, like, celebrating Kwanzaa. Obviously, Adair is correct because it's all a performance. The part that I find kind of semi-frustrating or maybe semi-amusing is that Black people don't really celebrate Kwanzaa in America at a level that would make it necessary for popular culture or their average person to be thinking about it in their relationship with Black people, you know, as they navigate their life. But I bet at least one Black person had to answer a question about Kwanzaa as a result of that tweet. Like someone got ambushed at their job, you know, either like literally on site or work from home slack channel about like hey you know kareem uh i just wanted to say happy uh kwanzaa aka african christmas
2: it reminds me of the hot sauce in the bag thing which it it, what one of the things that makes me wonder is it's surely some people did lexus nexus right after this to see if she had ever mentioned kwanzaa ever before in her life public life like ever before oh yeah in
0: 2015 once
3: Okay. Right.
0: She, that was like the other time she tweeted about uh, Kwanzaa. But I will say, just so people don't fucking fact check me and give me like 17 Pinocchios or some shit, it is <laughs> technically possible that she celebrated Kwanzaa as a child.
2: Unlike the Tupac thing, which was actually literally impossible. <laughs> right, right,
3: right. No, it was 66. It was it was created responsible watch rides, And like her father was a radical Marxist in- uh, And Jamaican. In, right. In Oakland, California, right where it was.
1: <laughs> this wasn't from jamaica like this was not about to be like oh we're gonna do kwanzaa now but like the thing about it is though what makes it such a disingenuous
0: lie wait wasn't she raised by her indian mother though her mom is indian yeah yes yeah, so, but i thought she was raised by her so when was she yeah, she was raised by
1: her mother she was raised by her indian mother she didn't grow she didn't grow up with her black family and her black her jamaican family's basically been like nah she ain't with it but what makes it disingenuous is how she tried to make it sound believable by being like, oh yeah, I celebrated this with generations of my family. Right, right, and right. And then people are arguing over the semantics. We're like, well, she technically could have if she did with her mom, her grandma and like aunties and stuff. And I'm like, but those are all Indian folks that she grew up with. So why would they celebrate it? But two, the phrasing was meant to invoke, invoke this idea that her mom celebrated when she was a kid and her grand and that's just not how that shit worked.
0: I mean, it's just a little demeaning, I think, to even pretend that it's that she did it. I mean, I was just gonna say technically it's possible because unlike Tupac, Kwanzaa <laughs> was around when she was a child, so she could have technically celebrated. She didn't, of course. The part that I think is kind of like funny is that there is clearly this need within the Democratic Party, both the black people within that party, or I guess, you know, basically any minority who like leverages their identity to find success within liberal circles, to like mystify in this case, blackness to the degree that it's just so arcane in some sense like I would imagine most black people celebrate Christmas in America given like the colonial history of Christianity it's just further mystifying blackness for a white audience in a way that I don't think is necessarily helpful is it super harmful no probably not but it's just and I think it's further indicative of how they have to like both have full domination over black identity and then also pretend like it's so esoteric that most white people just can't really understand it Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely overthinking it it's just really weird like it's just such a weird thing to pretend to do like it's such a (laughs) it's just such a weird lie
2: it's totally unnecessary that's that's one of the things that is so peculiar about it is there would have been it would have been no issue had she just not done that and it wouldn't you know she wouldn't have been missing out on anything or had suffered any large negative consequence for not doing it but by doing it she makes herself a lightning rod so i mean i guess i'm i begin to wonder is that the point
3: And that's the thing. It's like that's Biden's entire history from like from completely plagiarizing someone else's life story to, you know, uh, corn pop, like everything that he tells. He doesn't need to say those lies. I mean, like he could have gotten elected by telling talking about like Bo Biden's death and how it affected him and how he loves his son. And like all of that stuff could have happened and helped him get elected. But instead, he tells a lie like he was the only person who talked about Charlottesville or he was the only person who who ran as a direct result of. of white supremacists like it's just it's unnecessary it, it, it completely confuses the issue and it means like that becomes the spectacle it's almost the, the same reason why I think Trump talks about the same things that he does where they create a spectacle that's completely a, a, aside from any point or any politics in general and that becomes it that becomes the thing that everyone discusses
2: well it also sets up the her as a as a target for both conservatives and the left as you know a black woman being attacked by a bunch of white bros that are you know being racist, and it sets it up around a s- vaguely racial issue that is also as vacuous and empty as the identity kind of mispolitic that they use among the liberal circles
0: i mean for me it's kind of just weird to watch like a black person, someone who's just you know un deniably black, perform blackness in a way that's so alienating, because, like, you know, Obama did that as well, there are plenty of people who have identified Obama sort of code-shifting strategically to appeal to both black and white audiences, but, like, kamala harris does it in a way that's so alienating as a black person that it becomes very easy to see that with obama where it did appeal to black people with her it's just primarily for a white audience mm-hmm. like it's just she puts on these displays of blackness primarily for a white audience because how else can you how else can you explain being so radically out of step with blackness in a way that the everyday average black person just cannot Like identify with in those liberal circles being able to argue that you are a good avatar of like the totality of you know the black experience is obviously valuable for your position as the vice presidency but you know when you're just so clearly out of step with like the everyday average person who looks like you in the country it's just hard to deny that like white people are just not listening to any other black person but the one that they like the best the only thing worse than having, like, no black friends is having one black friend mm-hmm. and having that black friend be incredibly shitty. And, like, you know, Obama, Kamala Harris, very white liberals, shitty black friend that's going to just misinform them about, like, the black experience for profit. But let's pivot. You know, let's do a hard pivot, uh, you know, away from Kwanzaa. I know it means a lot to our <laughs> listeners. It means a lot to our panelists as well. Um, I wanted to pivot first to talk about the Covid nineteen relief bill that just got signed yesterday. Obviously, I think we're still waiting on whether or not the two thousand dollar additional checks are going to be signed. Uh, my guess is probably not.
3: Yeah, not, not at all.
0: Well, John, why don't you uh, display your anger, uh, your white rage at this uh, woman led <laughs> bill? <laughs>
3: So part of the reason why we know that the the $2,000 checks are not coming is because the things that Trump said that he negotiated as attachments to them, specifically the repeal of 230, um, are antithetical to what the Dems want. So what's going to happen, and this is part of the reason why Nancy Pelosi did what she did uh, last week when she put the $2,000 checks through uh, for unanimous consent. What unanimous consent allowed was for the bill to be basically shot down by one person saying no. And so one person said no. And there was there's basically no record of who did it but it was obviously a bunch of republicans so now they're suspending the rules and having another vote on it today through suspension you need two-thirds rather than a roll call vote which would only need 51 and she's doing this she's saying because of expediency because it will have to go through by suspension you don't have to wait the amount of time for anyone to read the law but they could make the law a one-page addendum to the other that says we're going to give two thousand dollar checks So by doing suspension and requiring two thirds, it's going to get shot down in the House again. And they're just going to use it as messaging saying Republicans don't want it. Now, if it does pass, it's going to get to McConnell in the Senate and McConnell is going to then turn around and say, we are going to do what the president wants and attach suspension of uh, 230 to the bill. Now what that will do is basically make it so that anybody posting anything online, uh, the corporations that own the platforms will be responsible for anything posted. So all of a sudden Twitter, YouTube, uh, all of these will basically just go away Um, (laughs) because they can't afford the liability as we've seen with what happened to Pornhub over the past week and a half. So it's gonna be very, very, very interesting. Um, It's really just more theater and what it boils down to is neither party actually believes in giving anyone this money. And because the constituency that they served has already been helped, the stock market is at all time highs. Assets are being fought over by people who have liquid capital um, in record waves, including with housing, as we've talked about on the show before. And as we talked about on our the mini sh- a new show that Richard and I do Um this is exactly going to plan and this two thousand dollars is a stunt from every single sector now that's not to say that the house members who have tried been trying to get two thousand dollars per month uh and the senate members who have been trying to get two thousand dollars per month are not genuinely behind it it's just that there's such a minority within their own parties um that it doesn't matter
1: i mean yeah i think that's a really good succinct coverage of it. there i think that the public has become enamored with this idea of two thousand dollar checks, and a lot of the people that i've I've spoken to just to kind of see where your average person is who's not like us, who doesn't actively follow all the twists and turns of what's going on in you know Congress at any given moment, they all think they're getting two thousand dollar checks. They heard that Trump vetoed the bill because they wanted to because he was going to get two thousand dollar checks sent, and then all all of the messaging after that outside of that has been everybody's been on board, we're gonna get $2,000 checks. So because of that, and because of the way the news media in this country works, and they only wanted to get, you know, $2,000 checks is a big hit of good news. Right before the holidays, it was gonna, it increased spending.
3: And and right before Georgia.
1: So if they don't deliver, (laughs) there's gonna be hell to pay. But also within that, I wanna point out that uh, Cori Bush And what's the brother's name is Jamal something. I don't know his last name. Bowman. Yeah, Jamal Bowman. Those two have both actually come out already and said, hey, no, $2,000 needs to be what it is. And we're not necessarily going to vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. So what are you really trying to do? And I think that ends up becoming a really important cudgel here. Now you're actually starting to see people who are taking this this moniker of I'm here to work for the people are coming out publicly saying this as incoming freshman Congress people. That puts Nancy Pelosi on notice. And... We're seeing more and more politicians being willing willing to take on the bully pulpit role and really start going to the meetings like, hey, this needs to be this needs to get done. So if they don't do it, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of carnage in the next midterm election. Like you're going to see a lot of Dems lose their seats. You're going to see a lot of Republicans lose their seats in the House as well. And it might end up being a really, really big shakeup and could either the, the lower House could either flip red or we might see something that's more of a 50 50 split
0: well yeah i mean it's all anecdotal and obviously it's all in the messaging and you know who controls the narrative about whose fault it is that people are not getting support but just from what you've been seeing on twitter people like pulling screenshots from republican subreddits and shit like that it seems that republicans are also if not from a anti-capitalist standpoint just from like a self-preservation and like the bill that is being passed is Obviously insufficient in their opinion, just from like a practical standpoint to solve their problem. Right. And that's why I think Adair is correct. Like this is becoming, you know, for a lot of people, not so much of an ideological battleground in terms of like Republican versus Democrats. COVID-19 has revealed to them that like some people are safe and are not worried about what the next few months will will contain for them and their family and their livelihoods. And some people are are a lot of people are like people a lot of whole neighborhoods and whole communities are now and even just the way this bill was rolled out like how fucking long was this one again like fifty five hundred pages. Yeah. Right? And of course it was associated with like it was it was attached to the omnibus spending bill, which caused another wave of negative press about like how much of the money in it was going towards foreign you know foreign aid and uh stopping the Dalai Lama reincarnation process. A la Eddie Murphy's the golden child. Uh so like that wave of negative press about, like, how like frivol- how much frivolous shit is in the bill, how much frivolous money is going towards foreign aid or NASA or whatever, along with the military, has a lot of you – know, there's a lot of reasons for everyone to be upset. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why people are finding it expedient to highlight how inept Congress on both sides has been, you know, to getting people
3: the basic – their basic needs, to the people's basic needs during a pandemic. Yeah, but I, I think what's important to note is, like, how – how this strategy is going to play out for both sides is like Nancy Pelosi fundamentally does not believe in giving $2,000 checks. She sides with Larry Summers and she sides with her good friend Pete Peterson. She believes that this will actually have a negative impact on the long-term health of the economy. And so she's doing everything she can to make it seem like Democrats are fighting for it while at the same time quietly sabotaging it. For sure. The thing she cares about most
1: though is being in power. That's all that really matters to her. And so that's what it ends up coming down to is because of the way the media narrative was crafted in the in day, the immediate days to hours to days following the announcement that Trump wanted $2000 checks she jumped on it it becomes it, and so now if she doesn't deliver it it doesn't matter what the republicans if people don't care about the people don't care or understand the politics about it
3: But here's the thing, Adair, is that she can deliver it, and the way that she did it with UC was quietly postponing it so that Trump would have to sign the original bill before they had the pocket veto and everything stopped. Like, that's why she did the UC to give them the holiday weekend in order to do this. So now you have it that she's going to do, rather than roll call, which you barely have time for under the current rulings, she's going to do suspension so that they can get to it today, and then that's going to give it another thing. And she's going to turn around, and if it doesn't pass, she's just going to say, the Republicans. Republicans in the House don't want it. Now, what's going to happen is if it does pass is like I said, she doesn't want it to go to the Senate because she fundamentally doesn't believe in it. So if it does pass, you're talking about the situation where those Republicans are feeling exactly the type of pressure that we want them to be, which is their constituents are saying, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. This is horrible. This is horrible. We need to do something. And they might. There might be enough to get this thing to pass where that happens. Well then it becomes on the opposite side of it, where you have then Mitch McConnell trying to attach 230 to it and say, look at these Democrats, they don't want to do the thing that your president wants them to do, which is suspend the little notifications he gets on his tweets. And at that point it becomes exactly the same interesting war that we've been seeing back and forth messaging where the Republicans are going to blame the Democrats for it not getting done, the Democrats are going to blame Republicans for not getting it done, and we're going to be having the same news organizations Saying the exact same fucking thing about everything, which is why this entire pandemic response has been a giant fucking clusterfuck of death, murder, and misery.
1: And so you're not wrong. Absolutely. You're not wrong. Like I want to be clear on that. But here's and here's my point.
3: People don't care. And I
1: think if you look to the 2020 election 2020, yeah, 2020 elections, excuse me, uh, time is no longer exists for me uh, because of flat the flat circle, dude. Um if you really said that, like you look, you sit and look. The Republicans got fucked. The Republicans are terrified. Republicans are terrified. Dim saw what happened if dim dim sat down and said, okay, if safe red, Georgia can flip. If you know, they had a real shot at several other states that are considered safely red, Ohio came close to flipping. Wisconsin did flip. Michigan did flip. The fact that these places are so incredibly close is what's really going to end up putting pressure on things because that's the thing that in the past, Without a pandemic, with people having income, with people at least, for the most part, being able, being focused enough on their everyday lives because enough of them felt comfortable that what was going on in D.C. really just seemed like a million miles away and had to have some kind of special education to understand, all of those illusions have been ripped away. The pandemic has really, like, forced people to sit down and say, okay, well, my government has to react to what I need, and if they don't, when I go to the ballot box, that's the only thing that they put that is even mildly frightening to them, right? And so I think that's what we're going to see here is if they continue to fuck around, they're going to get wrecked in the midterms, both parties, and neither of them can afford to have that happen because right now all they're trying to do is jockey to remain in power. And so I think that's where we're going to see things happen.
3: Who do you imagine would be doing the wrecking? Because like who's left? What are you going to have? QAnon and progressives?
1: In all honesty, I think you end up seeing something that's closer to 2010. I think you end up seeing the Republican Party is open to a, an insurgency from Libertarians. And I think the Democratic Party is terrified because, again, you saw Corey uh, Bush and Jamal uh, Jamal Bowman. You see these people, they're coming in like you see more and more people, everyday people off the streets in the Democratic Party beating incumbents. So the Democrats are already getting blasted. The Republicans have already seen what happens when they have an insurgency from their from their Libertarian right, right, come in. They are trying to consolidate power. The only way they can really do that is by, so they got the unemployment going through, so more people are going to get unemployment help. And I think they increased uh, the payments by $300 a week, which is a big deal for a lot of people. But this $2,000 check is even bigger in so many people's minds. And so that's where I'm coming from. So I don't think you're wrong, but I do think they have to pass the bill. Otherwise, they're going to see an insurgency, the Dems from their left and the libertarians from their you know libertarian right.
0: Or even like, the Trump the Trump insurgency, right? Because we know Trump is going to be in a media fixture past that. He did call for $2,000. But I do want
2: to get Richard in here, right? Yeah, just a, my anecdotal kind of experience what I've been talking with people is that Trump did a good job of positioning himself as the guy who wants to give people the checks and that both Republicans and Democrats are both either incompetent or incapable of delivering those checks on their own. And Trump had to step in, of all people, and people are, like, shocked. And as Dare mentioned, people think that they're going to get these checks. And the failure will not be attributed to Trump if they don't end up getting through. That'll be attributed towards the House and Congress not being able to sort out the technical details that John was alluding to earlier, or was mentioning earlier. Uh, I think another important aspect of what we've seen that was uh, also touched on a bit was that the bill was 5,500 pages. AOC and other policy wonks came out and said, there's just no way that they could read and comprehend what they were signing, which I think we have to extrapolate means that those people that are voting on it aren't writing it aren't i mean it, that's that's obvious and we know about alec and other organizations that produce this legislation and uh the, basically that produce a uh, phil and the blake legislation that's used across the country and so the people that you know, these representatives as they're called are not actually representatives are not our representatives the representatives for those bills for those corporate interests to sell them to us which i find interesting because if we remember the relief bill that we're talking about now is not about 900 billion the debate a few months ago was between Democrats at between three and two point two trillion, and Republicans coming up as far, starting at one trillion and coming up as far as one point three, I think. And so at nine hundred billion, we're actually Democrats gave away everything, gave away all of their ground, and lost some of the fund, lost some of the original size of the.
3: And part of that nine hundred billion is it's not actually nine hundred billion; it's reappropriation of funds that were put from the first CARES Act that weren't spent.
2: Yeah. So you have Democrats essentially doing what we know them to do since at least the Obama administration, which is negotiating against themselves to offer even less than they were the Republicans originally wanted to give us.
3: And there's a fundamental reason behind that. It's because the economic experts that they adhere to do not fundamentally believe in a supply in a demand side economic principle like there's they are all supply side. And that's what they believe. You look at Larry Summers on Bloomberg and the article that he wrote today doubling down on his principle that two thousand dollars to every American will overheat the economy despite the fact that we have record unemployment and the expiration of an eviction ban that means about 18 million people are going to be evicted
0: first of all i want to say i enjoy larry summer's uh, uh, rebuttal argument even though it had you know it's a little weird with the epstein did kill himself uh paragraph but other than that you know i thought it was a powerful (laughs) argument about the nature of the economy sort of being like a you know a computer. And if you put too much RAM into it, it just overheats or some shit. I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not a computer person. It all sounded very technical to me. I will say, though, I think that Trump is at his most effective messaging when both the Republican Party establishment and the Democratic Party establishment allow him to position himself as this, you know, Washington outsider who's just trying to cut through the bureaucracy and get help to your everyday average person because he's not the same as all these politicians, even though that's obviously a bullshit fiction right what mm-hmm. i do think is problematic though and where i think john and adair's kind of uh analysis Coalesce is the difference between the Democratic Party's purpose as a you know quote unquote political party or institution and Republican Party's purpose, or rather how they leverage or use their power. The Republican Party uses their power when they have you know Congress, when they have states, when they have like the Senate, the presidency, the Supreme Court to gerrymander and do vote and do like election fraud shit and like basically make it impossible to remove them from power, like to further entrench their power. As a political party. That's also reflected by the fact that the average age of the Republic, of Republican representative in House and in Congress is just, you know, 40 years younger than the average age of a Democratic Party representative. And the reason why is because unlike the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, they leverage their power and all that fucking money they raise and the billions and you know billions and billions that they get from like Hollywood and liberals and New York and billionaires and whatever. You know, they use that money to ensure people that like Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and just a few key Democrats and a few key seats never, ever have to worry about losing their seats. And so when you talk about consequences to Nancy Pelosi specifically for, you know, not getting a $2,000 check through. There really aren't any because all the money that goes in, all of that like institutional power the Democratic Party has is going to be leveraged to make sure she keeps her seat and then also she keeps her role as speaker. Who's going to feel that kind of fucking heat? are like the other Democrats, down ballot races, you know, Democrats in like little house seats around America in counties that are really suffering from COVID-19, both, you know, financially and health wise, because, you know, there are no hospitals, there are no like there are no jobs or shit like that. So like, you know, the Republican Party, I think there's right, you know, they might see some Trump led insurgency or some Trump adjacent or some far right insurgency based on them not helping people and giving money away to Wall Street, a la Tea Party. Well, Democratic Party, they might just lose seats to this new Republican insurgency or old Republicans or whatever. But Nancy Pelosi will still be in power.
1: So I only have a little bit of pushback there because I do agree with the vast majority of what was just said. But here's where I come from. Democrats aren't just going to lose seats, right? They're going to hemorrhage them if things continue to go the way they are. And here's why I say that. If you look at where Democrats are strongest, the West Coast, the Northeast, uh, you know, parts of the Midwest, these are places that are being slammed by covid la county is no longer has icu beds la county is a huge population center and a huge democratic stronghold people are going to die there and it's largely going to be black brown and poor people aka three of the biggest contributors to the democrats pay, uh base there you're going to lose a lot of those folks and the people in congress that are there now that are allowing this to happen with their mismanagement of a global pandemic they're going, the people that survive that are going to remember that the people that survive that you're going to inspire quite a few folks <clears throat> to go and run for office. And so what I'm seeing from the uh, the people that I'm in touch with within the Democratic Party, right, that operate within that apparatus, the people that are that are doing political strategy, at least in the Seattle area, is there's a real concern for incumbents in the uh, in uh, in upcoming elections incumbents are on the chopping block and the party is worried that they are going to be held to bear for what happened no matter what the messaging is right there people are they're trying to float out now okay well what if we said it's uh, it's republicans fault but the reality of the situation is people no longer care so Nancy Pelosi might be within power in quote unquote in power in the Democratic Party but she will no longer be able to wield that power in the ways that she wants to she will no longer be speaker of the house she will no longer have any actual control it's going to be her grasping at straws and really what this ends up coming down to is you're seeing an acceleration of the decline of an empire happening in real time brought to bear not by war not by uh, a coalition of different countries that america has been trying to you know enforce its imperialist imperialist agenda on but simply by simply by a pandemic and the fact that capitalism is really showing its true colors now and that's what makes the dems so nervous and so vulnerable going in. Nancy Pelosi may have power in Maine, but she won't have power effectively. And that terrifies the Dems.
2: I don't know if the Democrat, I don't, I don't know if the people that identify with as Democrats and vote in democratic elections have the self-respect and dignity that it would take to to recognize how badly they're getting shafted by Pelosi and the Democrats to actually hold them accountable. I don't, I have not seen evidence of that as of late.
1: To respond directly to that, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people in this country don't identify as a Democrat, but they still vote for them. They still vote for them because they are culturally trained to say, OK, well, this is who we should be uh, voting for. They still vote for them because, you know, black folks are like, well, Republicans hate us the mo- most. Same with a lot of Latinx folks and all these other different communities have been told the Democrats actually care about you. But this pandemic has shown that they don't. And so there is real concern amongst the political class at least those folks that i'm able to get in touch with who are actively planning strategy for the upcoming uh midterm elections here in a couple years there is a serious concern and democrats are more vulnerable than they realize they are plus the just the fact that we're going to see a skyrocketing death toll because of all the christmas travel and the fact that we were running out of large counties were out of icu beds prior to people even traveling for Christmas.
3: And those are the only places with the actual facilities to take care of something like this.
1: Yeah, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Harborview Hospital and the University of Washington Medical Center serve Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and Alaska. Harborview is the only level one trauma center in this area. Uh, UW and Harborview are the only two that I think really have the, that are really equipped to deal with the long term ramifications of COVID and the fact that, you know, once these places run out of ICU beds, there's not another
3: major uh, population center outside of California. You know, I, I think part of why I think Adair might be onto something, uh, and I'm not necessarily sure I'm going to throw it around and say, like, okay, I have hope that the Democrats are going to be like primaried and they're going to be decimated. But the the thing that I'm seeing is that in places like, my home state, Rhode Island, and California and New York, places that are massively Dem and have been Dem strongholds forever and ever and ever, what you've seen in the pandemic response that we've talked about all along, which is they're not closing restaurants. They're not closing malls. They're not closing all of these points of massive infection. And so infection is getting out of control. And the reason they're not doing that is because they need the revenues. And so their whole thing is we can't shut down commerce because we need the revenue and the the people who are actively paying attention to this pandemic and not the people who think that it's a flu or, or nothing, but the people who were have their political views changed by how the United States handled this pandemic are watching the Democrats fail massively because they're giant fucking hypocrites. And so I think that there, and I know this because anecdotally, I've talked to people who are seeing this. So I think that there will be some of that to what Adair says.
2: I think that the, I think that there's going to be a lot or a significant amount of that to a degree but I'd also take note that it's not the the idea that democrats have any culpability or responsibility for the failures of the covid response in their localities their states cities and municipalities is not has not been uh pushed through in corporate or mainstream media at all it everything is trump's fault and that fits into a narrative and that they've been like gulping down for the last four years and so the idea that the 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 responsibility for an action or the failures of action will be placed at the democrats at the local level i i'm not i don't see that in mass i do see like just like as in 2016 there were some people that peeled off from the democratic party as a result of what happened to bernie i i see that happening again but i also see it being about that same size of the the group, about one tenth out of the the politically minded folks that are paying attention, that are recognizing the failures of the Democratic Party, it will have will break off, and the other ninety percent of the people that voted Joe Biden are going to stay in the Democratic camp and think that the resolution is through voting for better Democrats. So real quick,
1: there's two hundred and thirty three Democratic seats in the hundred uh, in Congress right now, right? And I'm just pulling this up right now um to look at so we've got 233 democrats democrats 196 republicans one libertarian and five vacancies this is not 2016 and i think this is what a lot of the political pundits are getting wrong and from the sources that i do have that are actively looking at forecasting and trying to and that work on the elections for democrats at the local level but who work with the party at the national level as well is the fear is that that messaging no longer matters it's the so when we talk about people that vote in primaries right uh, presidential primaries, at least, you're looking at like 1% of the voting population, that's just me pulling a number out of my ass, please don't quote me there, I can I can do further research later. But you're looking at a very small, very select, very hardcore group of people that are really willing to go in and do that kind of effort, right? That's not true, necessarily for the general election. You can say, well, it was Trump's fault," all you want, but here's what's going to happen in solid blue states. All a challenger has to do to really fuck up an incumbent is go go to people's house and say, what did Congress do for you during the pandemic? Did Congress take care of you? Were you hungry? Were you at risk of being evicted? Were you not working? What was going on in your life? How did they serve you? And then say, I will make sure that you are taken care of. That's what people care about. We get so focused on more of the minutiae and more the idea that so many people that people identify as a Democrat, and that's just not the reality. There are safe Democratic spots because people in a lot of times people don't cha- care to, uh, challenge incumbents. A lot of times people in certain areas are culturally one party or the other or have a very specific idea about taxes and things like that. But that's no longer the case. The pandemic has really changed a lot of the rules for a lot of the people. And the reality of the situation is if people are suffering, incumbents are vulnerable. And so you could easily see the Democrats lose 100 seats across the country. That's realistic. You could see them lose 100 seats across the country. You could see Republicans, you know, lose 100, you lose 50 seats for people that are going to toe that party line. Stop. I'm not stop it, Adair.
3: You're making me horny.
1: <laughs> i'm not necessarily saying you're gonna you're gonna end up losing right you're not gonna see a bunch of independents you're not gonna see a bunch of socialists you're not gonna see a bunch of marxist leninists suddenly in congress but what i am saying is you're what you're gonna see is uh is people refuting that party line particularly with democrats people in these places willing to run as a dem willing to run as challenge that incumbent and attack them from their left and that is what i mean when i say you I have to really look at this and say it is possible that the Dems hemorrhage seats. It's possible that they lose 100 seats overall, and of the ones that they maintain, that, you know, 10 to 15, maybe 20% of those are non-corporate Dems who may be willing to actually take a fight to that party, and that could lead to that implosion there.
0: So Dems are terrified.
3: You sweet-talking motherfucker, you just know how to get in my heart. I love you. Okay, well, this is not a sex chat line for you two to talk about <laughs>
0: shit, so let's, uh, you know, let's keep things tight. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was gonna say it there. I agree with you. I think that, you know, you're right. The Democratic Party specifically is poised to alienate a large swath of their voter base. Because like, you know, now that like they have leveraged a lot of people's trust in them, you know, a lot of people who are suffering from the pandemic's trust who haven't who haven't already sort of tuned out. Uh they've leveraged a lot of that trust in them. Uh, On like their ability to like once Joe Biden comes in office to, you know, change things right to like make people's lives better in a meaningful way. They've always made these changes in the past and have failed to deliver on that. But you know, in the past that has been able to be entirely cordoned off or justified as just the folly of. Individual subpopulations, like, well, we got to do the crime bill. You know, well, we can't help black people too much. We can't help the gay community too much. You can't help poor people too much, right? But, you know, now that we see so much more people falling into precarity, it's going to be a lot more eyes on them, expecting them to actually deliver more than just symbolic rhetorical change, right? Because that's what they were running on. They were the science party. And to add to that, they're already trying to rehabilitate members of the Trump cabinet or Trump administration or White House, you know, media political complex. Because those are their friends. And I think that as well as the, you know, mass deprivation caused by COVID-19 has the possibility of like, Alienating people. We see people responding to Washington Post articles that are trying to rehabilitate, like, the architects of the Trump administration's fucking immigration party, which is, like, you know, booze. Like, even the sheep who read the Washington Post, right? You know, even their readers are just not necessarily in full agreement with the rehabilitation of the Trump cabinet and Trump administration because shit, like, The entire Democratic Party, maybe even more so than Obama versus Bush, their party line for four years was that this person was the devil. People are going to be woke up both by their material conditions, but also just they are being woken up, more broadly speaking, to the discrepancy in the way the Democratic Party expects you to treat Republicans this inconsistency and portrayal and necessity of Republicans like half the time they're terrorists who are harassing you you know the Trump administration is literally Hitler all SNL is now is making fun of Trump admin officials that's it we'll see how long that lasts but the more long-term effects of suppressing the Democratic Party voter I think is likely because unless the Democratic Party voter is given an alternative from the left like a dare saying to vote for that actually has material changes it's likely the Dems are going to lose those seats but But, you know, the Dems might be willing to forego some of, like, you know, having a Democrat, a real left Democrat in a seat that is open to a Democrat or Republican if it means having a Republican there who won't vote, you know, to fundamentally change things. Because we know they're not really interested in that insurgency either.
3: No, they stand against that for ideological reasons. Exactly.
2: I think the large question that's being asked around on the left that doesn't have a kind of certified answer or whatever is just that, what does building organizational power outside of this system as it exists look like or, and or how does building power within that system affect change? Like that seems to be a large portion of what it is. And so you have the Corey Bushes, Jamal Bowman's and others that are kind of working from within and resisting uh, loudly. And in those two cases, you have AOC, who was a more vocal uh, oppositional figure to the Pelosi power structure until bef- recently until recently exactly and so I think what you see is part of what happened what we've seen a pattern of over decades if we look at if you've lived it or if you look back historically historically of this kind of uh, coercion of the people that get put into these positions and that the positions and the power structures are more powerful than the individuals that get placed in them and eventually overwhelm these individuals, whether you believe Obama was one of those people uh, and was overwhelmed by the system and had to become this centrist, uh, you know, Wall Street apologist, or, you know, whether you recognize that it it was all, all bravado and show going into it and that he never actually meant that and what people were doing was putting their beliefs onto obama which i've seen we've seen now recently a lot of more liberalish commentators or leftish or whatever they want to identify themselves as uh that are like oh joe biden actually sucks how do, how, uh, how could we have known that? <laughs> you know we-
0: how could anyone have guessed joe crime bill biden but you know honestly look <laughs> going back to what Richard was saying and, you know, distinguishing between like, you know, people who were legitimately tricked and people who were pretending to be tricked. I think part of making that distinction, which we talk about a lot, is rooted in this idea that it actually matters, right? Because at a certain point, there's so much evidence that you can't trust Joe Biden, whether or not you legitimately believe that you did or you were just lying. doesn't matter because either way, we can't trust you to make those decisions, right? You know, unless you have some sort of really legitimate excuse, when really, if someone tells me that the excuse for quote unquote trusting Joe Biden is because if you don't trust Joe Biden based. Based on, like, the very narrow parameters that we have on our political imagination and also practical, like, then you really don't necessarily have any vehicle to have any kind of hope. And while I can empathize or sympathize with that position, it's not really a justifiable <laughs> reason to trust Joe Biden. It's an irrational mm-hmm. belief that like, well, if Trump is bad and this one person is less bad, then, you know, hopefully whatever he does will be less bad than what Trump does. But like, the lesser evil argument about the Republican Party and Democrat Party is loaded for a lot of reasons. But one of those reasons is like Adair said, a lot of people who vote Democrat don't really know or keep track of what Democrats are doing at the local level, at the national level, at the federal level. They just project onto the series of like, you know, values that they hold. In their heart, because they're cultural Democrats or they're culturally liberal or whatever, and they don't necessarily ever follow up. And so, when you know they've learned a semi good rhetorical argument that is more or less true that the Democrats are quote unquote better than the Republicans, but in what ways they're better, who knows, right? Because we know Joe Biden's already gone back on the whole immigration closing the camps thing. And of course, when people were saying, of course, he's not going to close the camps because he started the camps," people were like, well, <laughs> you know, if I don't believe that Joe Biden is going to close the camps, then I guess, you know, there's no way to close the camps. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> not true. Yeah. Like Richard's saying, the question is how to build organizational power. And I think that question involves like, oh, you know, it has to involve both a within and without strategy. But mm-hmm. in order to develop that strategy coherently, I think you have to speak plainly to what the issue actually is. And going to the question of what, you know, what I think Richard was hinting at did not like open the floor, obviously, to other ideas, like the question of institutional power I think it's necessarily because I think on the left, as we have conversations with the Democratic Party, sometimes, you know, we like to paint the Democratic Party as this neutral institution that has some good actors and some bad actors. You know, it has people like Nancy Pelosi in it. It has people like AOC in it. It has people like Elon Omar in it. It has people like Chuck Schumer in it. You know, that kind of thing. Like, it's a neutral institution. We do the same thing sometimes, or a lot of times, with a lot of our corporate media outlets. We treat the New York Times as though it's a neutral institution. They have some good column they have some bad column. And part of the conversation about this within without strategy needs to at least to have legitimacy, acknowledge that the Democratic Party is not a neutral institution. It's a reactionary one, it's a conservative one, it's a neoliberal one. And yeah, there are leverage points and there are figureheads and there are people who hold an inordinate amount of power, but at the institutional culture level, it is resistant to change. You're going to find yourself constantly impeded while working within that party. Democrats, if they fail to combat the mass economic collapse, mass housing collapse as a result of COVID-19, are going to find themselves in trouble electorally, assuming they can't actually deliver real structural change or convince people they can deliver real structural change. But they might also just say like, well, We'd rather give over this election to Republicans than have real structural change because ideologically that makes sense to them. And so, like, that's a that's an antagonistic party. And because we have have developed this lesser evil criteria for these parties, it's often obscured that some things aren't a matter of comparative or comparison. They're just a matter of, like, practical... Like baselines, like you know, like the idea that like it's easier to move Joe Biden to the left than than fucking uh Trump. Okay, sure, maybe, but that's like me telling you it's easier to deadlift four hundred like ninety five pounds than it is to deadlift five hundred pounds. It's like if you can't do it, it doesn't matter. (laughs) The fact that one is less is kind of obscuring that point.
3: Well, it just gets to what we've been talking about or arguing about on Twitter forever and ever, or for the past couple weeks, which is whether or not we force a vote on Medicare for all. Like the the argument against it seems to come from the idea that the Democratic Party can be eventually moved to accept Medicare for all as an inevitability and as a mass benefit for society. But what you have to understand is that's not what the purpose of forcing a vote is. The purpose of forcing a vote is to make people realize exactly what you just said, which is that the Democratic Party is in opposition to any type of material change to our economic situation in America. And going to a Medicare for all system, or, God forbid, which would be amazing, an NHS-style system where we have... Profit completely removed from any type of health care intention is antithetical to what they believe in and what they want. So they're always going to be oppositional to that. And what we need to do is tear them down, and especially on this issue. And I think that that's what forcing the vote will do. It will make the the absolutely blatantly clear that these people are opposed to any type of material transition of wealth from the upper echelons of society to the lower echelons of society in order to make anything more equitable, because they fundamentally do not believe in that. And the party itself fundamentally does not believe in that.
0: No, I absolutely agree with you. So I can't speak to the argument that's been happening online about Medicare for all for forcing the vote, because if I wanted to argue about pushing the Democrats left, I would have voted for Joe Biden. And I didn't vote for for Joe Biden so I didn't want to spend the next month pushing Democrats left because I didn't think when we when people were talking about yeah. like arguments for voting for Joe Biden or voting Democrat in 2020 and part of that you know part of that calculation was we were going to push them left and we were going to make sure there was accountability I never heard anybody express any argument or any how you know way to hold people accountable that wasn't just like framing the dissemination of information in this particular format you know podcast on, on the news whatever and then telling people to continue to vote down like ticket Democrat and then four years or two years tell them they have to vote for Joe Biden or Kamala Harris to prevent Trump. So the accountability that we just we lack those tools. And so I can't speak to what people's goals are for Medicare, the force to vote thing. My goal, I think, and I think we've been clear about this on the show, is that we at least have to start disintegrating people, liberals, non-voters, Democratic Party voters, where we can from the Democratic political media apparatus, right? I don't think it's behooves anybody to assume that voting dim over republican in their local election will prevent things from getting worse (laughs) like i don't think that that's something you should condition the people to believe and so part of what i was saying a little bit before was that i feel like you know when we have these questions about what we do about the democratic party what strategies work we have to be able to you know acknowledge that like the democratic party is absolutely antagonistic to the change of like electing progressives at the local level because they do not want to change institutional uh, culture there they don't want to they don't want the left to amass any power at all and so for me it's like we got to start getting people to realize that this is what the democratic party is doing that the argument that they're the lesser of two evils that they are like the only thing that can stand between us and the republican party is one that is incredibly vacuous because it's essentially just like a person holding you over a pit and threatening to drop you into the pit. If you do anything to try to like rescue yourself from this precarious situation. And then, you know, someone asking you like, well, is the person holding you over the pit better than the pit itself? It's like, well, they're part of the same threat. (laughs) It's just like the fact that, yeah. And so I guess my point is that like, the Democratic Party, the forced to vote conversation, the conversation about the Democratic Party being antagonistic is also happening in the context of people trying to get the Republicans on record for resisting $2,000 checks to people because they don't want to help people because they understand that posing them that way will cause people to realize what the Republican Party is all right. about. If you're in favor of that, I don't necessarily understand how you can be not in favor of the Democratic Party being put in the exact same position unless – right, and this is the truth – unless you fully acknowledge that the Democratic Party is a – an Antagonistic evil force that is looking to quash progressives in their own party at any opportunity. And that means that these barriers have to be considered very heavily, and we have to be very fucking cautious and suspicious of people who claim to be working within these systems about what their goals are because of this institutional culture because we know that it's meant to transform people into good democratic party uh fucking uh liberals
3: one thing that you can say to back up all of that is over the past let's see since 1940s and what the democrats have voted for when we're talking about foreign policy has been aligning themselves with fascist parties to hunt down and kill leftists repeatedly not the entire democratic party but just enough to to make sure that these things have been happening over and over and over again worldwide and so the institution itself is not going to allow that to happen domestically without completely removing it from the chessboard in some way
0: I mean, I'm not willing to argue whether or not the Democratic Party is a reactionary or conservative institution because it actually is. We know that to be the case. You know, I think the argument that exists in the media that they like that they're just some neutral body is the result of people who are Democratic Party adjacent and wanting to have some kind of career either in Democratic political media establishment or have some career based on that political establishment that requires access to it. Presenting it as though the establishment is neutral because then their interactions and their navigation through it should not be the subject of fucking criticism. Or suspicion, right? And I think that's something we talked about last week, too, about the quote-unquote good pundits at the New York Times. who We're supposed to take that their work is somehow produced outside of this institutional culture of the reactionary New York Times because, like, they sometimes leverage relationships on social media as the good pundit or sometimes, like, means of production on MSNBC. That's supposed to make us forget that at the institutional level, here's what their goals are, and everything they're doing is in service of those goals
2: yeah and that's what i think is critically important is that that focus on the goals and like i think that's really what is a kind of line in the sand of sorts and when it comes to organizing within and without of any sort of system that we're existing under and the 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 point you raise about them being antagonistic is is critical like you have to understand if you have goals of anti-capitalism anti-imperialism anti-colonialism if that is your goals then the democratic party stands in opposition to that and it's like those are those are my goals as i identify them and it's like and i don't find mm-hmm. that people that want to perpetuate those things to be aligned with my goals and so when we're organizing power from within it's important to recognize as as chad mentions the institutional goals are to maintain that neocolonialism neo imperialism and capitalism they there is no way that the system and the 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 positions as they exist are going to be anti-capitalist anti-imperialist it's like that doesn't exist within this system so what people what you're arguing for from within the system is a diffusing a, a, a destruction of that system and so Work, having success and, and and power within that, to that goal is one thing, having success and power within that system to perpetuate it is another, and the system is such that it is designed to shape and mold you into the latter rather than the former.
1: I'm going to shift more or less from what I was doing earlier. So in an earlier conversation, I want to be clear, that was just me as a political, like, as just someone who does political strategy, right? That was my thought process there and what I've been hearing from sources in the party. Speaking to more, you know, this broader idea, I don't think you can work within the Democratic Party. I agree 100% with Richard. I think it's antithetical, and I think you see things like that uh, coming coming to show... Right away, I think you see that with AOC and her call for sanctions on China for shit that they're not even doing. Right, you see the furthering of imperialist goals by self-proclaimed socialists in the United States, uh, particularly people who end up in power in Congress in the Democratic Party. I do, however, feel that forcing the vote is a requirement, and I think that's an, so. I think that I think that's one of the things that comes into this, and I think again, speaking as a strategist, right, it's one of the best ways that you can hammer incumbents in this coming election. If they don't force the vote, every single Democrat should be primary. Absolutely every single one of them should be primaried. It should be drawn through the streets that they refuse to support a policy that 80% of their constituent of the of people that identify as Democrats support. 80%, 80%, Republican constituents, Support Medicare for all. You've got over 50% of those people that do that. 70% of the United States population supports instituting some kind of national health service, be it entirely Medicare for all for everybody or some idea of this idea of Medicare for all who want it, which is. A dumb idea in my in my uh, opinion, because that gives Democrats too much of a chance to leave it toothless. But even the fact that you have that, you can leverage those things. If you're a member of Congress, it's not hard to ask for a roll call vote. It's not hard to go into your own party and say, guess what? All right. You want me to do something? I need you to do this for me. We need to have a floor vote for Medicare for All. The squad could do that. It's within their power. Pramila Jay, uh, Jay Powell, she could do that. She could side with them. That's in her power. There's a progressive caucus in the United States uh, House of Rep- uh, Representatives within the Democratic Party. What are you doing if you are not forcing a vote that your constituents absolutely need? It's gonna put more money in their pocket. It's gonna put more money in your, you know, sacrosanct economy, and it's going to stop people from dying. We're losing tens of thousands of people, at least 45,000 people a year from simply not having insurance. And that was from a study that was done at Harvard a full 11 years ago. That number is increasing, particularly given the climate that we're in right now with the pandemic and the fact that we are vulnerable to these in a way that people still aren't really grasping. But if you are in Congress, you are required to understand. You can do these things. Push Pelosi to do the right thing, hold the Medicare for all vote, and guess what? If you force the vote, you have one of two things happen. Either one, it passes the House and it goes to the Senate and it dies in the Senate because of Republicans, and then bam, that's the best political strategy. That's a gift. That's a fucking gift. Their own constituents want Medicare for all. So if if it goes to the Senate and it dies there, That is that's how you win the midterms that alone right there, that vote in the Senate, if it dies in the Senate, that wins you the midterms that flips the Senate, that keeps the House. And that gives you even you in all honesty are elected to have a supermajority if you force that vote and it goes that way. And then, two, if you force the vote and it fails in the House and the only way it would fail in the House is if Democrats. Turned their backs and said, "I'm not going to vote for this." That shows you the weakest people, the the weakest uh, positions in the House. Those are the people that you absolutely can primary and beat. It te- like it shows you who the weak links in your party are. So there's no political strategy that I can think of that would tell you you can't do this. And, for those who would argue and push back and say, "Oh, well, we can't do it. You know, we have to wait till everything's going." Then two really disingenuous arguments that piss me off about this. The first one is people who say, "Well, why don't we? We should tie it to reparations. We should let's put in the reparations bill we'll and get us reparations." Reparations are not at odds with Medicare for all. You fucking donk! Stop trying to make two things that that don't, that aren't in conflict and act like we can't have one without the other. And then two. If you're so well off that you can be like, well, I didn't have health care for X number of years and I made it so we can just, I can go ahead and sit here and wait. It's not about you, you fuckwit, so fuck off.
0: I can think of arguments for why you wouldn't want to force the vote, but they all relate to how shitty the Democratic Party and the media are. Right. You know, I can totally understand the argument against voting, you know, forcing a vote, you know, because, like, yeah, it definitely exposes the Democratic Party, like who's weak, who's not, you know, who, despite signing on to these things, are not in favor of it. And we know that just speaking back to the 2019-2020 Democratic primary, one of the big issues was that information about what people in the Democratic Party primary stood for was just muddy. No one knew who stood for what, no one knew who stood for Medicare for All, and the media didn't feel like it was their job to clarify those things because it was just a political campaign. So you can totally argue that it would not be a practical move to do because, the A, the Democrats won't vote for it, then the Democrat-aligned media will not necessarily support – uh, the narrative of what's actually happening. It'll just be, oh, these rabble rousers, AOC, blah 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 blah, whatever. And so, I totally understand that, but I think it exists in contrast with the logic of the other side, if it makes sense. Which is that the Democratic Party, is something that you can work. Let's be honest about AOC about the squad. If the Democratic Party at the institutional level, and this is why it's important to acknowledge that what they are and like what the inertia of this party is divorced from any other thing. If they knew AOC would be the thorn in their side that she is, they would have stamped her out immediately during in the in the primary process. The media would have like run some shit about how she's anti-Semitic. They would have like funneled more money into the campaign of the incumbent there, right? So like the idea that we can. So here's the thing, though. But here's here's the thing with that. Here's the thing with that.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares in primaries. Nobody cares what the media has to say in a primary. In all honesty, nobody gives a fuck. Secondly, you can shove a bunch of money into into the incumbents into the incumbents uh coffers, but here's here's how you win elections is you knock on doors. And that's what Democrat that's what the Democratic Party has refused to do, and that's why I no longer consult on a lot of Democratic Party campaigns. I've worked with quite a few people and said, hey, you need to go and knock on doors, knock on apartment doors, knock on project doors, knock on trailer park doors, knock on every Every single door you can get on because you, if you, especially as a challenger, especially as a challenger that positive interaction at the door is worth at least two votes the person you interacted with and the person that they talk to the most about these sorts of things if this especially if it's a married couple if it's a married couple you go on that door you knock you have a good interaction with one of them their spouse is much more likely to vote for you you are going to increase your share of the vote by simply knocking on doors and we can show this with models we can sit down and talk to people about this so I don't see how anybody even if I don't see how anybody could, actually in good faith make the argument right that you can't primary a democratic uh, a democratic incumbent because they'll just outspend you the i don't think anyone's making that you that. have to have money to run for politics it, it comes from it's a lie it is entirely meant to keep poor people out of politics as a whole
0: What you're saying is true. My point was more like whether or not they would have been successful at preventing a primary incumbency, whether or not they would have been successful, we know they would have tried because they've done that shit recently in in Massachusetts. We know that the state party was involved in trying to uh, fucking swift boat a candidate there. And it worked. Right, so we know yeah. that they're hostile to this experience. So to lend credence to your side, and I, mean, I mean, I hope I'm not portraying a straw man argument because I think that the solution to the question that Richard was posing, and I guess everyone's arguing about, how do you, you know, fucking get institutional power within the Democratic Party is, Adair said, you have to build it locally. Yep. You know, you have to build that power locally. You have to go around and sort of make the argument at the local level that what the Democratic Party establishment is offering, you know, whether you decide to do that as a third party or within that party, I think, you know, it depends. It depends on the situation might be more expedient Mm -hmm. in one situation versus the other. Right. But that's going to have to be done at some point, because there's no way that the culture of the party is going to change from a top down uh, approach that involves like, quote unquote, making the party accountable through media stories or through more. Article than which outlet. means
3: the national the national uh, front is basically almost a foregone conclusion at this point with without having. Without having a massive bully pulpit like AOC does or like Bernie does, there is – and as we've saw, seen what happens to them, um, the national front is basically gone. So you do need to work local. And like like you were talking about earlier, the one thing I wanted to interject was that if anyone who's been listening to the show for a while remembers me talking about my experience in New Hampshire with Pete voters and how almost every single Pete voter I knocked on in New Hampshire thought that Pete was for Medicare for all. Like That's why the vote – forcing the vote is important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that information has to get out there. And whether or not the media reports it appropriately, I don't think does matter that much because, frankly, we know that, like, media support behind a candidate, at least at the national level, hasn't really proved to be ticket to success. And we know that the absence of media support is not necessarily the death rattle of your campaign because AOC did win. However, I think the problem with focusing on AOC as she exists at the national level and, like, forgetting the fact that, you know, at some point you have to be building this local power to get people like AOC or to the further left in AOC or even just – maybe a third party into the system is people want to focus on national level i think aoc and this is not necessarily a critique of what she intends or who because who fucking knows right i think it's right for people to expect aoc to put her money where their mouth is because people are free to expect whatever they want she's a public figure and you're allowed to expect things from them you know whether or not she follows through is she's only really beholden to her constituency you'd hope some sort of ideological principle that you share with her but who knows right We, we don't know what she believes in her my point more specifically Is that I think AOC for members of a semi professional like media class, for semi professional like left class, and even for like a left adjacent pundit class, they build AOC up into this thing, this one-man army who can usher in a new wave of communism or whatever or leftism or reform the Democratic Party, both because there is a lack of hope and there are a lack of figures like her in office, just honestly, but also because, you know, for people who exist in this sort of leftist political space, there has always been this desire to, like, believe that AOC represents this grail of possibility that you can be both, like, sufficiently leftist and also famous and public circles and so they like to forget that like no you can't AOC is the exception that proves the rule it's like AOC is impeded at all sides by the democratic party they're her like largest hurdle to success and pretending as though her inclusion in this party is enough to change the institutional culture enough to like make you say okay well the party is not quote unquote like a neoliberal reactionary institution because it has a few people who are not that specifically is just lazy thinking. I think people, when it comes to time to an, analyze the Democratic Party, at least some people on the left or, you know, whatever they want to identify, who fucking cares? When it comes time to analyze the Democratic Party, analyze the problem with the media, they suddenly forget structural and institutional analysis. You know, all cops are bad and they can explain why that's true. But when it comes down to critiquing the Democratic Party and the New York Times and places that they might want to work or work adjacent to, suddenly there are good people and there are bad people there. Suddenly having one good progressive Democratic Party is a enough to give you hope for them. And so from my perspective, like, yeah, I don't think that you should say that you shouldn't work within the party because as somebody who's just interested in getting things done and feels like, hey, you know, as long as you understand that the Democratic Party is not there to help you, they're not neutral, they're there to quash left of the in its nations, you can maybe be more Active And coming up with strategies to subvert them, you know, in local organizing, if you want to infiltrate the party, but you have to be self-aware enough to not turn off that structural analysis. I think part of that problem is that people want to, you know, people like AOC, people who want to work within the party want to dole out very useful structural analysis about other institutions. And then when it comes time to like people to question them when they want to work within the Democratic Party, which is a reactionary institution, it's just like they expect a level of trust that I don't think is productive. Like I don't want people to look at AOC and think that that means that they should vote for their local democrat without looking into them. You know, I I don't want the I don't want that at all. You know, I want people to be be critical of AOC. I want people people to be critical of leftist adjacent media. I want people to be critical of, you know, the leftists who write New York Times. And my argument towards that is that, like, if you're actually understanding the situation we find ourselves in with these structures and institutions are, like, deeply reactionary and are interested in quashing change, you should be glad that people are at least suspicious enough of you to not trust fucking everything you say. Like, if I were trying to infiltrate a fucking, like, New York Times type shit and, like, leftists were – uh, critical of me or popping shit at me, you know, it would be offensive, I think, you know, it would upset my feelings, but I would be like, good, they're thinking critically. They understand that my inclusion in the New York Times is something that they should be critical of and they should think critically of, like, why I'm here, not just assume that I'm so special. And so, like, I think we get to this point where... People want to work within the party and then when sh- their inclusion in the party, like their own personal view of their own self-righteousness and lack of corruption to be enough reason for people to put blind faith in the party through them and their work within the party. When I'm just like, you know, if AOC or a particular person who's working in this in the Democratic Party like Bernie Sanders m- can benefit from my support in a particular instance, that's something we can talk about. If it's a situation where, like, they're trying to explain how because they identify as blank and they're trying to, like, change Democratic Party from the inside that they're above reproach, I think that's fucking stupid. And that just makes me think that they are putting a blind spot around Democratic Party or whatever media institution. Yeah not even not even like consciously sheep drunk i think that's a problem we, like we get into where we assume everybody because they speak well on a podcast is or rather writes well is reflective i know i'm not but they're not like you know people. <laughs> i mean i'm not you, you can't be you can't be reflective of everything you can try to be you can read to expand your viewpoint but sometimes we get in situations where like there are endless examples during the 2019 campaign of people who work in mainstream media getting mad that like bernie or bernie pundits point out like the structural reactionary like and like the incentives to be reactionary and structural problems with our corporate media washington post new york times etc etc and like the left adjacent punditry some of them circled the wagons you know because it's like they want to protect that social political class they belong to and like the inability to be reflective enough to go like oh you know what like yeah people should not necessarily trust everything that i say because this is that's what this means you know i mean like i don't use steroids i do other types of uh illicit materials (laughs) but i don't use steroids and i'll always say online like hey you know what people who operate in the fitness world you know, or even fitness adjacent world, like if you make money off your body in the sense that you're like a model or you're a actor or you're like a, you know, a bodybuilder for sure, anything like that, you're probably doing something like, you know, steroids or whatever to, you know, keep looking good. And that's not a moral judgment. That's just the reality of the situation. You're generally better off assuming that if you're following someone on Twitter or on instagram because of their fitness that they're on steroids and then people have i'm like hey well you know i think you're on steroids and i can assist that i'm not on steroids but you know at my core i'm like well good honestly it's better that you not trust me (laughs) it's better than just you not trust me as part of that umbrella of you can't trust anybody then you start looking for little exceptions to the rule little exceptions to the rule because like well maybe i can trust this person maybe i can't it's case by case oh yeah
1: so I think one of the things that we really have to focus on, especially for us, because we talk about what's going on so often, but I really think for a lot of our listeners, I really do think it's important that we remember to hold people accountable for the things that they say, right? And I think for us, a big thing is being open to recognizing when we fuck up, like I will 100% own that I'm not perfect, that I do not understand everything, that I will mis- you know, misinterpret or miscalculate or whatever, right um but i'm also really impressed with the idea of working within the democratic party i can see where you're coming from uh chad i can see why a lot of people are like oh yeah well we should definitely try to work within it but my frustration with that idea stems from having been in it i talk about it as a general thing because i've been there right because i've seen what happens behind those closed doors i've been behind i've been there i've seen the wizard i know what goes on in the you know in that emerald palace and it's not it just there's no way for it to work. I've watched people go into that system and get chewed up within days to months. And a few people have even made it a few years before they were just absolutely shit out and they did everything that they were told they were supposed to do. And all it all that part, all the party wants to do is keep shunting you, you know, from one place to the other. OK, well, maybe if you do this, well, maybe if you do that, well, maybe if you do this, well, maybe if this happens, well, maybe if we do that over there. Right, like there's no way. Truthfully, to work within the party unless you're going to adopt some kind of an insurgency a tactic, and that's the problem that I think i'm that I see uh with a lot of these people i see You know, they they don't, they refuse to hold on to their principles. They refuse to do every parliamentary trick in the book to make sure that they are forcing the Democratic Party to do the things that they said they were going to do. You can force votes in the House. You can go behind closed doors. You can use your bully pulpit. You can go and talk to your constituents. You can do the things that are required. In order to affect change, but they choose not to, and that's the reality of the situation. If you choose to work within the system, once you get to Congress, you are then beholden by those rules and those rules are changed on you every single time
0: you go to, you know, a new meeting. I think if you choose to work within the system, you also become at least partially culpable for criticisms of that system. Yeah. You know, if you consider yourself to be uh, thinking as a leftist, thinking about structures and institutions and like the ways in which the power actually function, and you want to infiltrate and work within the Democratic Party, I think that's absolutely fine. I think that we this. I think without the self reflexivity to understand what the Democratic Party is, you know, doing and what you know you as a person are capable of becoming biased towards that, because you, just for psychological reasons, like egotistical reasons no one wants to like actually work in a building where like they feel as though they're working around evil people you know, like, and that's where the lesser of two evil arguments eventually you just like, you know, you just find out that the people you're working with are, you know, they're just normal, they're normal people, they have a wife and kids, they have a, you know, they have this and that, and then you get all sensitive about the left from the outside criticizing you. I don't necessarily think that the argument is that big of a deal, right? I think that there are always going to have to be people working within a Democratic Party, I think there are going to be people working without the Democratic Party. I think it's understandable that they are going to be in conflict over
2: strategy. And I mean, there's just a litany of people like Peter Dows and others that have done this, have been through that, went through it and dragged themselves through the mud, ate all the corporate crap that they had to eat in order to try and make those changes and never made them, if we're to believe that that's really, you know, the, what they were doing this entire time. And so, like, it, it it feels disingenuous to to put forth the idea that the, the party itself is going, can be changed in that way. I think what's important and I think why uh, Dare and others are like begrudging about the, even the notion of working within the party in any form is because of it boils down to are you trying to shift the party into a, a more progressive organization, which I think is a fool's errand, or are you trying to undermine the institution in such a way that you rep- you're developing an organizational power outside of this system that exploits that system in order to enact change, but is not beholden to that system. In such a way that, like, I guess part of it, I think, is it's as important as theory is in that aspect of it, which I still advocate. Unlearning is important, too, which is unlearning how we understand the world to function in in ways that, like, the idea that we need we need to open ourselves, our political imagination, to alternative ways to exist in the world and for the world to exist around us and our interactions with it. And that means that's also the, the political power structures. And so... I think what's important is is like if you're organizing to get somebody elected then you're in the wrong you're you're doing it wrong in my opinion it's like you're organizing to achieve goals and this person is an advocate of those goals and to the to that point you support them in that endeavor but only and so like whenever they vary from these goals the accountability is well we you, you're the support for you was conditional on executing and enacting these things and if you are not doing those things it doesn't matter well you know i had to please pelosi in order to get th- that we First off, is like that's that's BS, but also it doesn't yeah. work. Where's Elizabeth Warren right. right now? She sold out any any fraction of self-respect and dignity she had. And what is she doing? Nothing exactly. Like, and she's she going to be primary. She got shafted.
3: Yeah, that's why the the only reason I will advocate for an inside outside strategy right now, knowing the history of the Democratic Party and the history of the United States, is because of climate. And like uh, Richard just said, I want to second that the the goal should not be to be to push the Democratic Party towards a more progressive. Uh, destination the goal should be to destroy it co-op their base and steal them because they're not a political party in the sense of like dues paying membership they're just a media institution that is how people americans outsource their morality to some form of political will but that political will is so nascent and so small through the current apparatus that it can be massively changed so like i think what we need to have is something along the lines of collectivos where we have like you know my neighbor mm. who across the street who I've been talking to who was like um you know kind of libertarian kind of something I don't really know, but all of a sudden, through Gladio I've caught him got him going to the point where like solidarity has entered his vernacular, and that is something that needs to happen at a local level so that we have something to push on and ready to capitalize on once we have achieved at least some semblance of destruction of the democratic party from the left.
0: I agree with you, right? So I think that I don't necessarily want to work within the Democratic Party, but I also recognize that I can't control everyone else's thought process or what everyone else does. And so I think that if people want to work within the party, that's absolutely fine. Where I have a little bit of difficulty in my opinion, the point of the within strategy is to be subverting the institution from the inside and gaining allies from the inside, right? You should be working at the New York Times or the Washington Post to expose liberals to the idea of, like, the left who otherwise wouldn't be. You know, you should be working within the Democratic Party to expose, you know, maybe other politicians or other people or other agencies to leftist ideas, not, like, not the, like, the the leftist outside, right? So I don't, I think that the within strategy can work independent of leftist criticism. A lot of these people who want to work within as the face of the progressive left require as part of that deal to be able to say they can control or, you know, properly properly represent the entirety of the American leftist part. Suddenly identity politics or whatever becomes about ideology too, where people just get very happy to be the leftist voice on MSNBC, even if it doesn't actually translate to material change. And people argue that we have to have this sort of leftist voice in these places, even if it doesn't result in material change, because like maybe they want to be that leftist voice or maybe they just, you know, are otherwise insulated from the problems and just like the idea of their ideas being in, you know, represented in mainstream circles. But I think we have to be careful about all of these normalization of language being untethered from material change and also it shouldn't be like the you know leftist writers in the new york times are bringing you know further left people like socialists and communists as readers to the new york times or readers to the washington post and getting us to subscribe there or to like that doesn't make any sense to me if like you know if bernie wants to go on joe rogan or whatever that makes sense to me expose them to that audience if you think that means i want to support or watch joe rogan that's fucking stupid I don't need to support Bernie Sanders going on Joe Rogan. I need to watch Joe Rogan. I need to support Bernie Sanders doing an appearance on Fox News. You know, if that's for that audience, that's fine. I don't need to support it for that audience. You know, if you're telling me that, oh, well, if you don't support it, then that audience is going to know that there's a schism on the left. I don't believe that.
3: Yeah, I I agree with basically everything you just said. It's just a a problem of like, how, how do you convince so many people, especially some of the people who have become, like we talked about, these professional left spaces, space occupiers, that their their current strategy is uh, ineffective at best um, and counterproductive, you know, and, and I think that's maybe a bigger conversation we can have for another time. I, I honestly think that we do need to force the vote. I think that we do need to um, get everybody we can uh, from the Democratic Party and steal them and, and start telling them, hey, you know how we can do that is give by giving health care, by giving $2,000 checks, by giving $5,000 a month, whatever we have to do. Um, And I think that's the only way that this project is going to work going forward. And we'd have so little time to actually grab the like the, the levers of power because of climate.
1: I look at it like this. There has to be a revolutionary party. There has to be an actual revolutionary party that comes in and does what the fuck we have always been talking about. And if you want to have an inside outside sort of strategy then you need to have both you cannot have people working within the democratic party and not have a revolutionary party also out here working for change being adamant being loud and being willing to throw a wrench into the, uh, into the you know, gears of power that are going on at every level. You have to be willing to disrupt things. You have to go in and actually fight for things. And we're not seeing that. People are, are so focused on the dims are the only possible way. The dims are the only possible way. And then when they get in, they get chewed up and spit out or they get transformed and become just another cog in the machine that they swore that they were out there really trying to change from the inside out. You have to have a revolutionary party in America. And until then, nothing's actually going to
0: change. And also, if you're not critical of these people and they trick you, then they blame you for not being critical of them.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with what a lot of what you guys have been saying. I think one of the things that comes to my mind is just uh, particularly on the left in the West and specifically the United States is the lack of international solidarity and the all the critique that's lobbed from the U.S. towards other socialist uh actions despite the inaction or in the the, like the failures of the left movements within the united states so i don't know if anybody on the left in the united states has space to be critiquing these other inaction movements uh the other thing i would just say is i think it's imperative that people start imagining a different world and a world without a democratic party a world without capitalism a world without the united states and a world without whiteness
0: I absolutely agree with what parts I was listening. And I just want to thank everyone for joining us. I hope everyone had a lovely holidays. And, you know, frankly, I just look forward now that Joe Biden is president. Soon it's going to be Kwanzaa every day. Uh, There are going to be 365 days of Kwanzaa. Uh, And you know what? I know it's been a hard year for everybody. And I just want to say, you know, thank you all for joining us to all the people who have become patrons in 2020. uh, Thank you so much. And we have a lot planned for 2021. And so this holiday season, this Kwanzaa season, give the person you love the most in your life the gift of a Patreon subscription to the discourse simultaneously get the person that you like the least <laughs> in your life uh patreon subscription to the discourse uh simultaneously get somebody who you like moderately you know you know maybe a acquaintance at work a subscription to the disc- <laughs> no <laughs> does everyone have a definitely do all those things but definitely but first and foremost have a lovely holiday season